going up towards the fill in the blank there on the sheet in front of you, I have a, a couple thoughts. Um, there are a couple different kinds of people in this world about how they view things. There are people that are black and white and there are people that are shades of gray people. I'm a shades of gray guy. Um, it helps me in areas like counseling. Uh, when I look at you, you present me with a, a trial that you're going through or a difficulty or a challenge. I can pretty much get into your head and say, hey, if I were in your circumstance, I'd probably be going through the exact same thing. And the shades of gray or the details or the nuances of life allow me to understand where you're at. Very rarely will I ever see things as either or. I'm kind of a both and guy. When I see things in scripture, I tend to say things like, well, it depends on what you mean by that. Um, for example, people say, well, is it this or is it this? And I'll usually end up saying, well, in this context, it's this. In this context, it's that. Black and white people, there's probably 50% of you here that are that. You scare me, all right? Uh, you scare me because things are very cut and dry, very clearly one way or another way. There is very clear good, very clear bad. So which is most accurate? What's the most accurate viewpoint to have in life? Well, I think that the Bible represents both. I think that obviously I'm a both and, right? Yeah, so we knew that was coming. <laughs> I should have just went black and white and said, all you black and white folks are wrong. There you go. So it's black and white. I'm right. Okay. So the idea there is that in the Bible, sometimes there are things that are within the details where Christ will say, I want you to do the ministry with all your heart. I want you to love your family with all your heart. You can't just say, well, black and white, I'm either doing one or the other. He would say, listen, actually, you're going to be doing both of those with all your heart. But there's other areas where extremes are necessary and black and white becomes more valuable. That is the fill in the blank in front of you. Here's what I wanted you to take away. When it comes to Christ, when it comes to Christ, we begin to speak in absolutes. When it comes to Christ, we begin to speak in absolutes. There are things that cannot be moderate. There are things that cannot be uh, wishy-washy. Things, for example, when it comes to Christ, what God expects. Values and allegiances to Christ. These things cannot be talked about in, well, I don't know. Either you're in or you're not. Either you love Christ or you don't. Now, I understand that there's different times in your lives when things get messy. But ultimately, when the Bible starts talking about things like love God, hate evil, right? I mean, that's pretty black and white, pretty direct. Love God, hate evil. And then I look at some other stuff in Scripture, and it's uh, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Do you remember that verse? That's pretty black and white. you got to lose your life to... Gain it. All these things seem to draw this line in the sand. Those are the areas in Scripture that are super uncomfortable for me. That is not where I operate very well. But what's interesting is there are areas where I need to grow up. There are areas where I need to learn to see things like Christ sees them. Do you understand when he says, love God, hate sin, I only hate some sin. 
I usually hate any sin that I see in your lives, but not in my life. It's actually where it usually uh, breaks apart, right? As a matter of fact, and you may see this in yourself as well, you'll see sin that, let's say, um, like for example, I used the example last night that I've never been a violent guy. That's that's not kind of in my makeup, and there's videos and stuff uh, online where someone would violently harm someone else and everyone else thought it was funny or interesting. I don't find any of that interesting at all. Uh, to me, it's repulsive. I can immediately go, evil, don't like it. But I can name you 10 sins that are going on in my life that I don't hate, obviously. You understand what I'm saying? I wouldn't allow them in my life if I hated them. And there is a place where God says, why don't you hate what I hate? And whenever we see in Scripture where God gets mad, where you look in the Old Testament and you say, well, God's just being mean. I want you to look at the context why. Almost always the stuff that triggers it is either dishonor to God's name, which he will not stand for, or harming another person. He's not going to stand by as the judge of the universe and allow one person to take advantage of another person. He's not just going to let that go on. He's going to get angry about it. In righteous anger, he's going to blast it and take care of it. And should we expect anything less? Do you want to live in a universe where God just goes, eh, whatever, fine, take advantage of each other, it's no big deal. Do you want a place where God is going to sit back and allow someone to harm another person without doing something about it? We want a God of justice, and indeed, we serve a God of justice. So before you look in the Bible and go, well, God's mean. I like the nice God. Hold on a second. Same guy. I want you to look at the context. I want you to realize he's mad for a reason, and it's a reason we should be mad about, and we're not. We allow all kinds of garbage in our lives to surround us and dissuade us and move us and compromise and all these things, whereas God will not stand for it. And he says, I want you to get it out of your life. I want you, and he uses words like to excise it, to cut it out. Very extreme terms of get it away from you because I will not let my children be harmed. He says things like when the enemy's trying to come at you, he's trying to get a foothold. Don't you dare give him ground. Don't allow him to have any foothold in your life. Why? Because he knows what's going to happen. So he tells you, take care of it totally and completely. Now, I understand that in there, in these necessary extremes of loyalty to God, that sometimes we can be zealous without wisdom that's dangerous. It's not just irritating, right? People that are just, oh, I'm all for God, and they're running over people on the way. That's not okay. Come on. That's not even wise. It's flat out wrong and dangerous. We must combine our passion and zeal. And those of you that are black and white, I really want you to take this to heart. You have to match your passion and zeal for Christ with wisdom. And realizing that there is more than meets the eye. I would hope that today, as you see Jesus get enraged at a church that had become absolutely useless to the kingdom of God, that you understand in the middle of it that you will see some of the greatest passages of mercy, love, and compassion 
from our God. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Revelation chapter three. Would you turn there with me? Revelation chapter three. It's the last book in the Bible. So first of all, you might want to turn your Bible over and go to the back, right? Then you back up a little bit and you'll find Revelation chapter three. It's page eight, six, nine. And the Bible is handed to you. Page eight, six, nine. And as we normally do, I'm going to read through the letter to the church in Laodicea, then we'll pray for the word and then I'll go back and kind of tear it apart. I've got some visuals from my trip over into the area of Turkey to show you some of these cities that we're going to be talking about and we'll see what God has for us. So let's dive into this. Verse 14 is where it begins. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. For here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are here, and in many ways, Lord, we get nervous when we read things like this, that, Lord, that maybe this would be a letter sent to us. Maybe this would be something for Bridgeway, where we think that we are pleasing to you, but somehow we've become self-deluded. I pray, Lord, that each and every individual heart today is sensitive to your leading. That we would open up our hearts to say, Lord, what do you want from me? And that we would change because of it. Do not allow the accuser to tear us down, but allow your grace to sweep in. Remind us that we have been cleansed. Put us back up that we may walk and walk for you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. As with each of the seven letters, and we're on the last, it says, to the angel of the church. I've talked about that in prior times. As a matter of fact, I've taught on that twice now out of the seven. So you can go back and take a look at what that means. But basically, he's addressing the church. And it's a church in the city of Laodicea. So the first thing that we need to do is kind of get a grasp about the history. Because if you understand the city, this letter makes a lot of sense. If you don't understand the history, you don't understand the region, the geography, you get really lost, honestly. Uh, Maybe you could read that and still take away a ton from it. I'm not going to discount that. But it becomes more and more rich as you begin to see topography, how things worked, 
the way that they engaged with each other, things like that. So why don't we go ahead? Uh, if you can throw up the first slide on Laodicea, when I had an opportunity to go over there, we went there. Now, these are large aqueducts and this is all ruins now. There is maybe a, a, a modern day city nearby, but as far as the ancient city, there's really nothing there. It's, it's all grassy. As a matter of fact, while we were there, a shepherd was wandering sheep through the middle of it. One of the kind of cool things that I've shared with you before is that when you go over there to visit these ruins, once you are in, they let you walk around and climb on stuff. That's very cool. So you get to climb up on the walls and you can go anywhere and go and look at anything. As a matter of fact, um, I brought a rock back from there. That's called stealing. <laughs> right? I don't know if they said I could do that. I just happened. So in my office, I have a little rock from Laodicea and it will become uh, the reason why I stole it is because it was cool. Um, and that makes it OK. Uh, there, I'll explain what 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 we need to understand about this city is a number of things. First of all, where is it 45 miles out of the last city that we studied remember as when we first came into the seven churches we came in at the port or the harbor of ephesus we began this long postal route that almost went in a circular fashion we have now run all the way around to the other side we are 45 miles southeast of where we were last time and we come upon the city of laodicea now it is in the Lycus Valley, like a lot of the other churches that we examine. But this one is on two critical roads. There is a road south and a road east that were the major trade routes of the whole region. In the ancient world, mostly when you settle a city, you want to put it right next to, and I mean on the bank of, a river so that you have a natural water source. This city was not placed there. This city is actually six miles from a water source of any magnitude. They put it here for industrial trade and they put it for military defense. What that did was make it prosperous in wealth, but have a dramatic weakness with water because the only way it got water was to pipe it in. Now, all over these ruins, let's go to the next picture. Um, as you can see, these are all fun things to climb on. Let's go one more. Okay, in all these rocks, you see holes for piping. Now, a lot of these were built after the time that we're talking about now. But back in that day, they had to ship in water or pipe in water through three foot in diameter stone pipes. They would have to move it all in. Well, what happens if you get attacked? What's the fastest way to shut down a city? Break their pipes, just stop the water flow, and then they're doomed. So it's a great weakness. When there was a massive earthquake, that can disrupt the pipes, and they were in an earthquake region. So it was not the strongest in that area. But they were extremely, extremely wealthy. There are three sister cities that all tie together called the Tri-City Area, and that is Laodicea, our city today, Colossae, where Paul wrote a letter to the what? The Colossians. So Colossae was very near. As a matter of fact, it's only 10 miles away. And then six miles away, we have a city called Hierapolis. Those three cities together were always linked. As a matter of fact, the churches of those areas were likely started by Epaphroditus, a friend of Paul's on Paul's third missionary journey. They would every letter they would receive kind of was circular and it would go through all three cities. Now. Laodicea was the most prominent of all three. 
They were the most amazing. They were known primarily for three major things, three major trades that made them popular and wealthy. So let's go through these, and I would love for you to lock them in your mind because they'll shine light on the letter. So number one, the first thing they were known for was rare, beautiful black wool, a glossy black wool on their sheep. Now, a lot of the sheep in the region were spotted or they were would be white or whatever. And so they had these shiny black sheep that when they would shear, they'd make into cloth and they had amazing garments and they became world famous for it. So people would come from all over the place. Their garments that they made were so popular that by the time we got 200 years from this, they began to be known for the name of their garments. People began to know them not as Laodicea but from a totally different name that refers to their tunics that they sold. So the first thing is the glossy black clothing. The second thing they were famous for is banking. They were so wealthy that when the earthquake that devastated 12 cities, do you remember we talked about that a little bit more in the past? When a massive earthquake hit and knocked down a ton of the cities, they were damaged as well. Every other city had to have help from Rome to rebuild but not Laodicea. They rebuilt with their own cash. All their banks were solvent. All their banks were backed up and everyone would come around to trade with them and get money from them. They were the wealthiest city in that little region. All right. Third thing they were known for a medical school. If you remember one of the other cities, they worshiped the God of Asclepios Asclepios was a god that was represented by the staff with a snake wrapped around it like we have on our modern medical symbols. Well, these guys worshipped a god named Menkaru, god of the valley. Later on, those two guys merged. And they had a medical school where they, one of their famous men that came from Laodicea came up with this concept that when people are ill, they're not just ill with one thing all the time. They have complicated and multiple illnesses and they need to be treated for multiple things. That was brand new in the ancient world. They began to mix powders and minerals and put things together and they came together what they called the Phrygian powder. Phrygia is the region they're in. The Phrygian powder was an eye salve that had medicinal properties that would help people see again. All right. Now we have black wool, extreme wealth, and an eye salve that they were world famous for. Are you beginning to see the letter come alive to you? There's a reason why he addressed the things that he addressed. The other things that we need to know is that it had a heavy imperial presence. Remember I told you that the main reason why Christians were persecuted in the early world was because of Caesar worship? Well, there was a major center of Caesar worship here in Laodicea. And that's why I believe this letter is written to them. The Christians were being persecuted. All right, enough history. Let's dive into this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen. Of course, we're talking of Jesus. Why is he referred to as the amen? Everybody familiar what amen means? We always say in Jesus name, amen. What does it mean? It means period. No, what does it mean? <laughs> I agree with that. That's a modern translation. What it means is I believe that to be true and now so be it. In other words, I know that's right. And now may God's will be done. That's really what amen means. So when you call someone the amen and personify it, 
you now all of a sudden say, Jesus is all the embodiment of God's will, and so may it be, as he is present. So, it is from the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, that's the second time it's been used of Jesus. In chapter 1, it was used of Jesus. And he ended up using it of Antipas, the man that was killed for the cause of Christ. You remember? Antipas, my faithful and true witness. In Revelation chapter 19, at the end of the book, a rider on the white horse comes riding out who is Christ, and his name is what? Faithful and true. That Jesus says, I am the standard by which you are being examined. I have been faithful to everything my father asked me to do. And everything I say with my mouth is true. When we see churches being judged, they are never being judged based on other churches. And we really need to learn from that. Too many times we deem whether we're doing good spiritually by looking at everyone around us. Well, I'm better than my neighbors. Well, I'm doing better than the people at church or in this area I'm excelling. Do you understand that doesn't matter? That's not your standard. We're not being graded on a curve. You're being graded on the exacting perfection of Christ. He said, I came here. I gave you a tangible, concrete example on how to live. So I'm going to match you up against me. So sometimes we look at other people and we get cocky. Oh, I'm doing excellent. Sometimes we look at other people and we go, oh, I'm doing terrible. They seem to be doing so great. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. It matters what you're doing. It matters what Jesus thinks of your works. It matters what Jesus thinks of your faith. You understand? And here he says, I am the faithful and true witness. I am your standard. And then he moves on and says what? He is also the ruler of God's creation. Arche in Greek. That means the origin or source of the sequence. Meaning the beginning of all things. What's interesting is Colossians, the book, Paul goes off on this concept and talks about how Jesus is a firstborn over all creation and he's this and he's that. They would have read that. That's very familiar to them. They understand that all things flow from Christ. Anything created has been created by him and through him. That's what it's referring to. So does he have the right to criticize them? Well, certainly. So we move on to verse 15. He said, and as the perfection standard, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know you as a church. I know how you operate. I'm in there. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. All right. Here's where we got to get a little bit more geography again. Ten miles away is what city? But the city of Colossae. Colossae had the only major natural spring water that was clear and fresh and cool. Now, what does it look like today? Can you throw up the Colossian picture? There you go. I was astounded. Now, I'm a fan of the book of Colossians, and I was really excited to go over there. And they said, We're, our next stop is going to be Colossae. And I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. I, I've read that book a bunch of times, and it's really exciting. And I walked up, and that was it. Um, it's totally undiscovered. It's all underneath there. And it was weird to walk up and see rocks sticking out of the ground, knowing there's a whole bunch more down below. You just can't get to it. And you go, what a waste. 
I wish somebody would just, well, it's hard to get licenses in Turkey to start doing Christian digs. Everyone familiar that it's a Muslim nation? Okay. Not only that, but that stuff's really, really expensive. But literally, no one has set their sights on going to excavate it. So it's all underneath a big pile of dirt. So what do we do? Next slide. We prayed. Okay. So we were sitting up there and we were were praying up at the top and it started to rain. It just started to drizzle on us. And then it cleared up and this massive rainbow shot over the top. And I just thought it was really, really beautiful. So Colossae, 10 miles away, has fresh, clean, cool water. That was the cold. Well, six miles away was one of the weirdest, most spectacular things I saw over there by the city of Hierapolis. Let's take a look at what that looks like. See that? What's that? It's not snow. It's salt. You're going through all the plain. Everything's green. Out of nowhere rises up a 300-foot-tall, mile-wide mountain of white comes out of nowhere let's go to the next slide looks like that it's just stunning and you're thinking what what in the world is that huge snow mountain until you get there and it's all hard then go to the next slide it begins it cascades down the water pours down creating those little stalactite type looking things let's go to the last one See how they're all kind of dripping down? The water bubbles up from the top, the hot springs. They're boiling hot when they come out, but by the time they run over the rocks, they're cooling all the way down. And so we all took off our shoes, rolled up our pants, and walked through all the water. You can just wander anywhere up on top of there. You walk down through the water. It was amazing. Those were known as medicinal waters, waters that were useful for things. That's where they would have a lot of their healing areas in the ancient world. So it was this idea that this warm, hot, boiling, medicinal water was nourishing to the body. We now have on one side hot water that is useful. On the other side, we have cool water that is useful. Laodicea had to pipe it in. And by the time it got to him, it was neither hot nor cold. We go back to the letter. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. All right, we got an interpretive challenge. Here's the challenge. I have always been taught growing up that Jesus said, I'd rather you be really good or really bad. But because you're in the middle, I have a problem with you. The interpretive challenge is, he said, I wish you were one or the other. So does Jesus really wish that you were a super sinner? Is that, that's the interpretive challenge. Has anybody else been taught that that's what it means? Anybody else been taught? Okay, everyone's been taught something else. Okay, fantastic. So I was in the only heretical church. No, I'm just kidding. That actually is a possibility of translation. I'm not going to tell you that that is an incorrect translation because... There are other passages in Scripture that support that. For example, he would say, Today I set before you God or your own way. Choose this day whom you will serve. And there's passages that say, If you are doing good, continue to do good. If you are bad, continue to do bad, because Christ is coming back, period. There's a lot of passages that support that concept. However, I don't believe that's accurate for this context. I think because the hot water was healthy... And the cold water was healthy. 
Those are both positives. The problem is when everything is watered down and compromised, it becomes useless. I think the problem is the uselessness, not good versus bad. Does that make sense? All right. So in there, we realize that they are lukewarm. What I have found in Scripture is there's a lot of stories of men and women that slide to extremes in their passion for God. You got King David, who he's killing Goliath in the name of God. He's 100% confident. He runs at a giant with a stone in his pouch with absolute abandon. Then you see him slaying enemy nations. You see him standing up for God. You see him dancing before the Lord to such a dramatic degree. His wife's embarrassed. This guy is extreme for God. But when that guy falls, he falls hard. It was adultery, murder, all wrapped into one. And this guy just hit the ground. Then he balls before the Lord, rises back up, goes back out. He ends up losing his son and worshiping God. You see these, this extreme towards God. You see Elijah, the prophet, who is up on the, the, against the prophets of Baal, fire coming down from heaven, doing the extraordinary miracle of a showdown between God and false prophets and false gods. And yet he gets, uh, uh, Jezebel says she wants his head. He runs away for fear of his life, ends up in a cave, totally depressed and wants to give up the whole ministry. I see a lot of stories like that. What I don't see in the Bible is stories like, well, I work in the IT department and uh, and I don't know if people think I'm a Christian or not. I mean, that's totally up to them. Um, and I go to church. I mean, the kids need it, you know, uh, and I, I'm pretty consistent, pretty consistent, you know, I. I did a men's group for a while back in college and, uh, okay. There's none of that. I don't see any of that in scripture yet. That's the majority of our lives, right? There's this whole idea of, well, I don't know. You're kind of a believer. You're kind of not. I want to know that you're a believer or not. There is no room for this whole, I, you know, I'm not really into it. I'm just kind of, I kind of go along with it because it's what my family does. Are you hot or cold or are you just sitting there doing nothing? Right in the middle, lukewarm. There's nothing going on. There's no passion for God. It's just kind of going through the motions. That's what's so distasteful to the Lord. The apathetic, the people that don't care, the whole idea of going, well, I could take it or leave it. No, you can't take or leave Jesus. That's when we start talking about absolutes. You love him passionately. He's your number one. He's your cherished priority or he's somewhere else on the list. If he's somewhere else on the list, get him back up to number one because that is his place. He said, because this church is doing nothing for the kingdom. I don't care how they look. I don't care how showy they are. I don't care how amazing everybody else thinks they are. In my world, God says, you are tasteless and I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, why the vomiting thing? Well, first of all, it's an extreme to show the displeasure of God. But this water that's pouring out, it has to be used a certain way to be medicinal. Otherwise, it just tastes gross. And so people would go, oh, look, water, and they try to drink it, and they spit it out on the rocks because it was so salty. The other thing is that in the ancient world, it was written, and the water induced vomiting. 
to some people. So you have to understand, this is all language that's speaking of the area. And Christ is saying, you know what? I'll spit you out. I got nothing. You do nothing for me. You say, and you got to figure out, why is Jesus so angry? Well, here's your answer. You say, meaning I didn't say that. You say it about yourself. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. That's a dangerous place to be. Notice that the problem is not the wealth. What's the problem? The attitude. The attitude's the problem. It's the smug, self-righteous, I can do everything on my own, I don't need anybody, I'm the big dog in my world, I run the show... That's what's so tasteless to Christ. I don't know who you are or how successful you are, but please don't ever use the phrase, I don't need anything. You need forgiveness. You need grace just to stay alive. Of course you need something. But this church had adopted this attitude of the area. We're wealthy. We can handle everything on our own. We can always provide. Rome, we don't need your money. When the earthquake hits, we'll rebuild it. No matter what happens in our lives, we can tough it out. We're better than everybody else. The church bought into that. They matched the culture of their day. That's unacceptable. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize... And you guys just don't get it. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Whose view matters, man or God? God. I counsel you, he said. That means, let me give you some advice, kids. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich meaning i don't care how much money you have you need the riches that come from me i have gold that's been purified you have polluted and tainted gold i have the things that last forever in my hand christ says our eternal life how much is that going to cost you you try to buy that here in the world it's impossible i have it i have the pure gold that you need I counsel you to come to me. I'm your merchant. You come to me. Buy gold refined in the fire. I advise you to buy from me white clothes to wear. Remember they're in the banking industry and they're in the what? Wool industry. What colors are wool? Black. It's interesting that he says, how about getting some white garments from me? You're all into the black garments. My garments are of righteousness. And what I think you need is that you need to be cleansed. You need to have the white clean garments of heaven and only I hold those in my hand. I advise you to buy from me white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And what else buy from him and salve to put on your eyes so you can see what's their other major trade. The healing properties of their eye Phrygian powder. He said, really, that's making you tons of cash. How come you still can't see? You guys are known worldwide for being able to see, yet you're completely blind. What's going on with that? How about you buy from me a little bit of salve that will clean you up spiritually, then you can see and you will understand. A slap in the face to be sure. And you look at this and you go, wow, oh my gosh, how could they possibly think that they're doing so good when God thinks they're doing so poorly? 
never underestimate the power of a human mind to self-delude. You guys, I live under that fear all the time. They didn't see it. What am I not seeing? I got three keys to maybe help you and to help me to break out of self-delusion. Let me give you three quick keys. First one, honest self-evaluation. Now, obviously, if you're self-deluded, this doesn't become super helpful, right? However, if it's just a minor tweak where you're not seeing something God wants you to see, I advise you. You gotta dig down deep and search things that you can't manipulate. For example, examine the fruit of your life. Examine your relationships that you don't get to control. Examine what ministry has come out of your life. Are you loving God more? Are you loving people more? Are you doing the core of Christianity right? Examine that. Second thing that I would encourage you to do is external checks. In other words, you're not going to see it, but other people can see it really clearly. I need you to get someone that you trust to look from the outside in and you ask them, how do you think I'm doing spiritually? What do you see? If they're a good friend and an honest friend and a wise friend, they'll tell you. And they'll go, you know what? I think you're a little bit arrogant. Or you know what? I think, I mean, you're asking my opinion. I'm just looking at you. There's a lot of garbage in your life, to be frank. External checks. Third thing, and the last final key that I'll give you. There's tons of them, but this is three. Third one, pray for revelation. The Holy Spirit knows exactly what's up. The question is, will you listen? Once he tells you, and he says, I don't like this, this, or this, will you do anything about it? We cannot live in self-delusion. All right, so now, here we are in the letter. Laodicea, they think there's something. God just cut their legs out from under them said you are poor, wretched, blind. He just completely trashed them, said you're being useless to where I want to vomit you out of my mouth. And you go, man, he must hate those people. You sure? Look at the next line. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Wait a second. You what? A bunch of commentators throughout history tried to break these verses apart because they couldn't understand how they went together. They tried to say this is a summary for all the churches. No, it's not. It's Laodicea. In the midst of their rebellion and uselessness, Jesus said, I love you. And I'm not okay with where you are right now. That's why I'm coming down on you. Those whom I love. This is a quote from Proverbs. Those whom God loves, he rebukes and corrects. However, there's a word change. You're not going to see it in English. What's the word change? In Greek, in Proverbs, the word is translated agape. That's that I love you with everything that I have, but even when I don't have the feelings, I'm going to draw through and seek the best for you. I will love you in action and I will maintain a covenant with you. This, law, this word just got switched. Jesus says, I phileo you. What's that word? That's the word of a friend. In the midst of all your garbage, I like you. I not only love you, I want to be with you. I want to hang out with you. I'm near you because you're my friend. Can you imagine the tenderness? It went from ferociousness to tenderness in one split second because they were always there together. 
he says, those whom I like, those whom I'm affectionate towards. Of course, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to say something. Of course, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to do something about it. No, I'm not just going to let you self-delude yourself into uselessness. It's not what I do for my kids. That's not right. That's not what a good father does. I will step in. Let's get back in line. So be earnest. That means mean it and repent. This is the fourth time he's told the church to repent. A lot of repentance needed in churches. Right? Is it any different today? Nope. Does it, does it, is it apply to us? Yep. Right? What do we got to repent for? There's a whole bunch of stuff. We got to sort that out. Repent. For here I am. Exclamation point in the NIV. Right? What does that mean? It means it's an intensified. Here I am. I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. You say, what, I'm going to shout at you from a distance? No, I'm not shouting at you from a distance. I'm right here. I didn't go anywhere. When you're rebellious, I'm right here. I'm right up on you because you are my children. I'm right next to you. And I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. Here I am. He says what? I stand at the door and I barge in. Stand at the door and I kick it down. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and that's the idea of saying, I'm calling to you. Are you listening? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, will you open the door to me? Are you going to take that initiative? Are you going to open the door? Are we going to do this? Are we going to repent? What are we doing? I'm out here. You can open the door for me and opens the door. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. That's a Middle Eastern way of saying, and we will be back together again and be okay. To have a meal together in the ancient world in the Middle East was an identifying issue. You did not have dinner with people you did not want to identify with or be known with. That was a major social faux pas if you did which is why it was such an extreme example to us when Jesus Christ ate with who? Sinners. He was identifying with them. And everyone was shocked. What are you doing? He said, these are my people. Okay. How many people remember the, the old picture of Jesus on the outside of the door raising his hand to knock? Anybody remember that picture? That's a famous picture. Every time, I bet you anything that you've heard this preached, taught, or quoted, it's used in evangelism. It's used for non-believers. Do you understand that you just ripped it out of context? It's not to non-believers. Who's it to? The church. Who's on the outside? Christ. On the outside of what? The church. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, guys, the reason you're lukewarm is I'm out here. I'm hot. I'm cold. Christ said, can I come in, please? We can change this thing around. Do you see the tenderness even in the midst of all the frustration that God may have? Um, I was sharing at at, um, a friend of mine, Ed's memorial yesterday. And 
his whole life, it was a big celebration as we were talking about his passing to be with the Lord and um, his family's here with us today. And it was a major celebration, lots of laughter, lots of joking. And the one thing that was very clear is he was not lukewarm. There was not one question of where he is with the Lord. There was not one question of what impact he had on the world. He was hot. He was cold. I don't care what you want to call him, but he wasn't lukewarm. And he, he was here as a testimony to the power of God. Well, the gentleman that did his reading that shared was a student in his ministry. Uh, in the darkest time of his life as a student, he locked himself in his room. As his youth pastor, Ed, came to his door, knocked on the door, and sat down and wouldn't leave. And he told that young man, I'm not going anywhere. Behold, I stand at the door and I'm knocking. I'm not going to break it down. I will wait for you. Are we okay now? Not now? All right, I'll wait. How long is it going to take? And he stayed there all night long. This is the Jesus that we love. This is God who comes down in the midst of our rebellion and wraps his arms around us and says, I'm telling you what's wrong because I care. I love you. I have so much mercy and so much grace for you, but we can't do it this way. I need to come in or we're not doing anything. He said, to him who overcomes... Who emerges victorious, wakes up, engages with Christ, whatever you want to say. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. The Bible says that after Jesus rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the father and he sat down on his throne. Jesus said, I did that. You want to do it with me? You're part of me. Let's join together. Let's go do that. Come on. We can go sit on dad's throne. It'll be awesome. And he said what? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I would love for you to review back through all the sermons that we've done on Revelation and examine which of the parts of those letters apply to us. Well, I'm going to close with a puzzle for you. A puzzle, just for fun, of something that I don't know. I'm not trying to give you this question where I know the right answer and I'm waiting for you to say the wrong answer. I just actually have a question for you. That I don't know the answer to. What do you do on a throne? You rule. If believers are going to be with Christ and ruling. And if indeed non-believers spend eternity separate from God. Then who are all of us ruling? Seems kind of weird. All of us are Christians. We're all ruling. If we all rule, is anybody really ruling? I don't know the answer to that. And I want you to chew on it. I want you to search it out in Scripture. I want you to figure it out. I want you to get back to me. Fire me an email. Figure out this stuff. Go through it and tell me what I don't know. I would love to know. Is it all about the millennial kingdom? If so, then it's not an eternal rule with Christ. Is it like Adam and Eve who ruled over the garden and we will rule over creation only in an elusive sense? Maybe. What is it? Because it's given to us as a reward. 
This idea that we one day will rule with Christ, but if we all rule, who in the world are we ruling? Just something for you to chew on. But I don't want you to miss the message. Did you hear it today? I'm standing at the door, and out of your compromise and moderation, you've excluded me. I'm sitting out here, and I would like to come back in. Can I come in, please? We got to get re-energized. We got to get re-fired up. Let's go. We can do this. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, but he can't strengthen us on the other side of the door. Open up the door and let him in. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for both a challenge and an encouragement that in the midst of your rebuke, in the midst of your discipline, is your loving arms, your arms that come in and are so merciful, where your arms that come in are so grace-filled that you long so much to embrace us, that you're not okay with us wandering on our own. You're not okay with us being excluding you. And I just pray right now, Lord, that you would allow us to see you clearly, to throw the door wide open in our lives, to allow you to fill our lives, fill our hearts, and that we may be all that you dream of. In Jesus' name, amen.